Life on earth is full of ups and downs, full of highs and lows, full of joys and hurts, full of good times and bad times. Of course, we enjoy the positive feelings more than we do the negative feelings, but both pleasure and pain are part of the human experience and both serve to enrich our lives. This is why we should never run from a hurt. Rather, we should embrace it. We should learn from it. There is a poem by Lois Cheney that sums up the way many people in today's society deal with their sullen moods, their emotional pains, their negative feelings. Miss Cheney writes, Feeling blue? Buy some clothes. Feeling lonely? Turn on the radio. Feeling despondent? Read a funny book. Feeling bored? Watch TV. Feeling empty? Eat a Sunday. Feeling worthless? Clean the house. Feeling sad? Tell a joke. Ain't this modern age wonderful? You don't got to feel nothing. There's a substitute for everything. God have mercy on us. We try to escape the unpleasant feelings rather than let God use them in our lives to mold us and to shape us and to deepen us. Today's Prozac generation has discovered that chemical means now exist to numb the pain rather than grapple with it, rather than deal with it. And yet, as a result, we lack the strength and the resolve and the depth that we could gain if we were forced to emotionally deal with the harsher sides of life that come up against us. Many people today have put their hope more in medication than in dedication. I think today's society has overlooked one of the underlying premises in the book of Psalms, that God has created humankind with a wide range of emotion. A full range. Each of us has the capacity to rise to heights of ecstasy. Each of us has the capacity to sink into the depths of despair. And there are times when you and I will be near either end of that pendulum. It's part of the human experience. The Psalms teach us that both pleasure and pain are opportunities for God to speak. There are lessons learned only on the peaks of joy, but there are also lessons learned only in the valleys of depression. And the book of Psalms takes us both places. It's been said, all 88 keys of human emotion get played in the Psalms. We're in Psalm 73, which is the first of 11 consecutive Psalms by Asaph, David's chief musician. Warren Wearsby offers us an outline of Psalm 73. He says, the psalm begins, God is good, and ends with, it is good, but in between, things are not so good. <laughs> Along with Psalm 10, 37 and 49, Psalm 73 deals with that thorny problem. If God is good and just, then why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Asaph begins, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Now, that's the psalmist's creed. That is a line from Asaph's personal statement of faith. He believes it. But he's having a tough time reconciling what he believes with what he sees around him. For Asaph admits, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It got to me, man. It got under my skin when I saw the mansion that the drug dealer built with his drug money. It got to me when I saw that tax evader driving around in that new sports car. When I saw the crime boss's beachfront condo, it just got to me. I grew envious. I almost stumbled. I almost bought into the idea that good guys finish last. That sin really does pay. He was almost blinded 
by the apparent contradiction that he saw in life. The psalmist came close to denying what he knew because of situations he couldn't explain. I hope you know that things are not always how they appear. I hope you've learned that by now. Asaph is walking by sight, not by faith. And as a result, he's being tempted to draw the wrong conclusions. He says in verse 12, These are the ungodly who are always at ease. Now, hey, wait a minute. You know, the wicked may seem to always be at ease. They may seem to have it made. But don't forget, sin has some ugly, ugly consequences. The ungodly experience a tormented conscience. Destructive addictions erode the underbelly of their life. A helplessness exists to face the challenges of life. A growing despair about the meaning of life rises up among the wicked. Selfish living fragments their relationships. Inevitable judgment hangs over their head. Hey, there is nothing easy about the life of the ungodly. But the psalmist is not seeing correctly. He's living more by sight, by how things appear than how things really are. He's tempted to draw another false conclusion in verse 13. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. In other words, hey, there's no gain in being good. Why even try? But that's not true either. You see, Asaph is being short-sighted. His perspective has become myopic. He's lost sight of the big picture. And what he desperately needs is to view his situation from an eternal perspective. And this is what saves this chief musician. He recovers the right perspective in verses 16 and 17. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then... I understood their end. You see, life on the mean streets is dog-eat-dog. It's easy for us to get concerned about just existing. It's easy. It's surprising how we can shift our focus from eternal salvation to just simply momentary survival. Heaven's viewpoint can get lost in the daily rough and tumble. And that's why we need to constantly retreat to the sanctuary. This is what he says, when I returned to the sanctuary, everything became clear. The right perspective was revived within him when he was refreshed by the presence of God. When he returned to the sanctuary and he saw things, he got his thoughts and mind aligned with the things of God. The rest of the psalm reveals the change in the perspective that came after the psalmist had aligned his thoughts with God's thoughts And he sees what will become of the wicked. Verse 19 says, Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. He knows that eventually the righteous will be rewarded. The wicked will be punished. Psalm 74 is a contemplation of Asaph. And it deals with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Which brings up a problem. For the Asaph of David's day lived not only before the temple's destruction, he lived before its construction, 400 years you know, beforehand. The Psalms attributed to Asaph were probably written by different Asaphs, descendants of David's worship leader, who perpetuated not only his name, but his heart for God. For the sons of Asaph became overseers of the temple worship. They were instrumental 270 years later in Hezekiah's revival. A hundred years after that, they played a vital role in the revival of Josiah. Still a hundred years later, they dedicated the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. You know, to me, the fact that the sons of Asaph keep popping up over and over in Israel's history is evidence of the strength of their father's legacy. Asaph, the minstrel of David, the chief musician in David's day, had a heart for God and he was able to so deeply plant it in the heart of his sons that they continued in their father's 
desire to worship God. It reminds me of a Dan Fogelberg song about his dad. You remember the line, I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. And that was the sons of Asaph. They were a living legacy to the leader of David's band, the temple band. They carried on his spirit of worship. Now, the date for this psalm is August the 6th, 586 B.C., when the Babylonians torched the temple. August the 6th is also my mother-in-law's birthday. I don't know if there's a correspondence there, but... Verse 3 sums it up. The enemy damaged everything in the sanctuary. They demolished it. The Babylonians had come and ravaged the temple. In verse 11, the psalmist accuses God of standing around with his hands in his pockets. He wants to know how long, God, will you allow Judah to suffer and Jerusalem to lie in ruins? And in verses 12 through 17, he reminds God of bringing the Hebrews through the Red Sea even past the attempts of Satan or Leviathan to stop them. And the rest of the psalm calls on God to settle the score with Judah's enemies. Psalm 75 rewinds 140 years earlier to another time when Judah was on the brink of battle. This time, rather than the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians who were the invaders. And King Hezekiah prayed. And in the night, an angel of the Lord came And in response to Hezekiah's prayer, he slew the Assyrian army, at least a large part of it. 185,000 troops lay dead the next morning. And that's when Asaph picked up his pen and wrote, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. Remember in Psalm 74, the psalmist wanted to know how long it would be for God to judge the wicked. Verse 2 tells us when God's judgment comes, Psalm 74, verse 2, the Lord himself says, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. You know, God picks out the appropriate time. You and I don't. You and I like to. We, We like to say, God, you need to judge them now. But God is the one. He says, I pick out the proper time. God knows best. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God chooses when and where the judgment comes. In verses 4 and 5, God warns the wicked not to lift up the horn. In other words, don't be bragging. Don't be boasting. Don't be tooting your own horn. Because one day God will shut you up. Judgment will come. Look at the psalmist's conclusion in verses 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God is the one who arranges the pecking order. God is the one who doles out authority. God is the one who presents opportunities. God is the one who establishes the chain of command. Exaltation doesn't come from man. It comes from God. Remember that the next time you seek that promotion at work. Remember that ultimately you work for God. And ultimately, God is the one who sets some up and sets others down. God is the one who arranges these things. Notice the implication is that God abides in the north. He says, exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But it doesn't say from the north. The implication is, is that God dwells in the north. He came to Job, remember, in a whirlwind out of the north. In Ezekiel's vision, the throne of God came from the north. The sacrifices were offered on the north side of the altar. Leviticus 1 verse 11 puts it before the Lord. Maybe this is why the compass always points to true north. I'm a southerner through and through, but I got to admit, God is associated with the north. The psalm closes with God holding a cup in his hand. He's mixed a double shot of judgment for the enemies of Judah. Hey, when God serves the drinks, beware. (laughs) The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, contains a footnote that dates Psalm 76 to the time of the Assyrian invasion of Jerusalem in 722 B.C. This psalm begins, 
In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle. And remember, Salem was a short form of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, God, we're told, broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle. And he delivered Judah out of the clutches of that ferocious Assyrian army. He sent the angel. 185,000 soldiers were slain. You can read about God's incredible deliverance in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 through 37. Verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 76 tell us, You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to deliver all of the oppressed of the earth, God judges. Just remember, it doesn't always happen when we want to see it. Remember the last Psalm. When I choose the proper time, I will judge righteously. In Psalm 77, we're again flip-flopping back and forth between Judah's two key confrontations in her history. In 722 B.C., God delivered Judah out of the hands of the Assyrians. And he showed mercy on the nation by giving her a second chance. But of course, she blew her chances. And in 586 B.C., God delivered Judah into the hands of the Babylonians, which was her final judgment. Psalm 77 is a prophecy given before the Babylonian invasion. And it asks the same question as does the book of Habakkuk. It's interesting to read Psalm 77 along with Habakkuk. Habakkuk was confused. He kept asking himself, why would God judge Judah with a people, a nation, even more wicked than us? God's going to use these Babylonians to come and judge us, but the Babylonians are worse than we are. And it just doesn't make sense to Habakkuk. Neither does it make sense to this psalmist. You know... I believe that we clear a huge hurdle in our spiritual lives when we realize that God's ways are not guaranteed to always make sense to us. If you can come to that conclusion, if you can embrace that assumption that God is not always going to work in ways that make sense to me, you will have made huge strides in your walk with God. Guys, God has a great curveball. He's got a good change-up. And he can throw either pitch at any point in the count and get it over. God loves to throw us curveballs. He loves to throw us change-ups where we have to adjust, where we have to realize, again, my ways, Lord, are not your ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are beyond my ways. He likes to cause us again and again to bow before Him and admit that He knows best, that He knows more than we do. In fact, there are times when God deliberately works in ways that don't make sense to me in order to test my faith. Do I trust God where I cannot trace God? Can I obey God in the dark? Everybody can obey God in the light. Can I obey God in the dark when I don't know what He's doing? Do I serve my own sense of reason? Or do I really serve God? In the first four verses of this psalm, the psalmist is so distressed that he can't sleep. Asaph accuses God of holding his eyelids open, he says. (laughs) He says in verse 7, Will the Lord cast off forever? Has his mercy ceased? His promise failed. Again, the promises of God don't seem to match up to the predicament of God's people. Have you ever run across a time in your life when you could say that? God, where are your promises? It's not jiving with what you've told me, with my situation at hand. It seems like your promises and my predicament are poles apart. What's more, Asaph, though, finds comfort by turning from the situation to the sanctuary. He says in verse 13, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Did you hear that? Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. It's not on the television. You don't get God's way from the television. You don't get it from the newspaper. You don't get it from, you know, just chewing the fat with your friends. 
You've got to go to God. You've got to go to the sanctuary. You've got to spend time with Him and get in His Word if you want to know God's ways. In the street, from the watchtower, the situation looks bleak. But in the sanctuary, Asaph is reminded that God is greater than any problem that he faces. And that's where you will be reminded of the same truth when you spend time with God. And yet someone might ask, isn't this a cop-out? Hey, when the real world gets tough, are we just supposed to run to the sanctuary and kind of get massaged by God? But here's what we need to realize. The sanctuary is the real world. The world we live in is just temporary. You know, it's the playground. It's not the real world. God, the sanctuary, that's where we find reality and truth and eternity. This world is passing away. Circumstances are fickle and fleeting. But God's promises last forever. And you are brought back to the real world when you get back to the sanctuary. Asaph closes the psalm, Psalm 77, with another reminder of Israel's passage through the Red Sea. When the centuries saw the Egyptians approaching, there was not the slightest hint in their circumstances that God would deliver them. In verse 19, Asaph remembers the Exodus. He says, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. We didn't have a clue. You see, God refused to tip his hand. The means of the miracle remained a mystery until the moment Moses raised his rod over the Red Sea. It was only then that that east wind blew and peeled back the waters and the people could behold the deliverance that God had worked for them. (laughs) God doesn't always hand you his card before he starts to do business. Sometimes you don't see his footsteps. Your footsteps were not known, the psalmist says. God may be working on your problem right now, and you not know it. The issue always boils down to how much do we trust Him? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God using illustrations from nature. And in the midst of that chapter, Jesus quotes from Psalm 78, verses 2 and 3, as prophetic of his use of parables. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Jesus taught hidden truths by drawing on parables from nature, the seed and the sower, and on and on we could go. Here in Psalm 78, Asaph uses Hebrew history as a parable to draw out truths applicable to Israel. The theme of the chapter is in verses 6 and 7, that the generation to come might know them, that they may set their hope in God. In other words, the God who had been so instrumental in their history would also be instrumental in their future. The psalmist looks back and he remembers the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the cloud in the fire, the water from the rock. But he also remembers the rebellion of the people. Verse 18 tells us they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. God provided them a daily diet of miraculous manna. Remember the word manna means, what is it? (laughs) They saw it on the ground, the little seedy, grainy, white wafers. What is it? Oh, that's a good name for it. Let's just call it, what is it? Manna. A new genre of breakfast cereal. Numbers 11 verse 7 tells us that it looked like a white seed. Verse 25 here in this psalm calls the manna angel's food. Isn't that interesting? The angels in heaven eat manna? Angel's food cake is my favorite. If you want to bake me a cake, bake me an angel food cake. I love it. I love that sugary, sweet taste. Apparently, though, 
real angel's food is not sweet or sugary at all. It's bland. And I'll tell you why we know. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 tells us that God fed Israel the manna to humble them and to teach them an important lesson that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, the menu that God cooked up for the Hebrews was his way of cultivating within them a taste for the eternal, an appetite for spiritual delights, not sensual pleasures. I believe the manna was bland. Because he didn't want them to get a taste for the manna. He wanted them to have a deep taste for him and to be satisfied with him alone. Every word from the mouth of God. Apparently, the angels can tolerate a bland diet more than the Hebrews. Because they griped about this manna from day one. They wanted a spicier diet. How about some of that Ricky Tobin hot chow chow that she gave me the other day, you know. How about some of that hot chow chow we had back in Egypt? How about at least some meat on the plate? And so God sent them quail, more than they could stomach. But they refused to trust God's promise and they hoarded the meat and God brought judgment upon them. And this was their history really in a nutshell. A return to the Lord followed by a retreat from the Lord Another return to the Lord, another retreat from the Lord, and on and on it went. And in verse 38 and 39, here the psalmist describes God's merciful approach to Israel's murmuring, to her wavering faith. He says, but he, God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned in his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away. I'm glad God remembers we're but flesh. That we're fragile. That we're fickle. And God shows us amazing patience, doesn't he? But there is a limit to God's patience. For verse 41 tells us again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. And the Hebrew word here translated limited means to scratch off. And because Israel chose to grumble at God rather than trust in God, the Lord scratched off blessings he had intended to give to them. You remember the older generation died in the wilderness having never entered the promised land. As I mentioned last Sunday morning, I love oxymorons. Statements that appear contradictory and yet used in the common vernacular make perfect sense. Here are a few more really good oxymorons. Government organization. Temporary tax increase. Airline food. Congressional action. Really? City worker. Legal brief. Male intellect? Female logic? <laughs> but verse 41 gives us the mother of all oxymorons. The Hebrews limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited the God who has no limits. Are you limiting what God wants to do in your life because of your bickering? because of your complaining, because you're not content with God's provision, because you don't trust that He knows what's best. Psalm 79 was written by Asaph, probably a priest who had witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And he is now in exile, mourning the nation's plight, pondering the prospects for her future. Psalm 79 opens with a gruesome picture. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. We have become a reproach to our neighbors. How long, Lord? I love, though, the imagery in verse 8. 
Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. Don't you love that? Did you know that God's mercies run a 4.2 second 40 yard dash? That they're speedy? They sprint when necessary. We love God's mercies because they're tender, but they're also speedy. They get to us when we need them. You might say God's mercies travel at the speed of need. That's so comforting to know. Psalm 80 is set to the tune, The Lilies, which could mean that it was intended to be sung in the springtime when the flowers bloom, perhaps at Passover. It begins by referring to God as the shepherd of Israel. And this is why Jesus was laying claim to deity when he said in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. God in the Old Testament had called himself the shepherd. And for Jesus to take that same name meant that he was claiming to be God. Of course, notice the shepherd of Israel dwells between the cherubim. And this was a reference to the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. You remember on top of the Ark were two golden cherubim or angels whose wings, you know, stretched over the Ark and touched in the middle. God's presence was manifested tangibly and visibly in the Old Testament on top of that box in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. Psalm 80 was penned during a time of trouble. Israel is depicted as a vine out of Egypt. And God had plucked her out of Egypt. He had planted her in the promised land. But now he has removed the hedge of protection around her. And the nations are helping themselves to her fruit. The pillage is on. Israel and Judaism were rooted, were uprooted, because they failed to bear spiritual fruit. That's why God had them uprooted. Today, the Jewish vine has been replaced in God's plan. Another vine has been grafted in. It's interesting, in John 15, Jesus is called the true vine. And today, the only way to experience growth, the only way to know God, is to be grafted into Jesus. A relationship with Jesus now does what the religion of Judaism could never do. And that was to truly abolish man's sin and put him into a permanent relationship with God. Psalm 80 describes Israel's suffering without really explaining its cause. Her dire straits were brought on by her rebellion. And again and again, God heard prayers like this psalm and restored the nation. He gave her every possibility to repent. And yet, tragically, she refused. Verse 3 of Psalm 81 mentions the monthly feast of the new moon. This was just one of many feasts that Israel celebrated. There was the feast every 50 years called the Jubilee. There was the feast every seven years known as the sabbatical year. There were annual celebrations. There were monthly celebrations of the new moon. And of course, there was the weekly celebration called the Sabbath. Understand that God blesses us without any anticipation of repayment. In fact, if you try to repay God you insult His grace. All God wants from us for His blessing is for us to have a thankful heart. All God wants from us is the willingness to celebrate His goodness to us. And that's why over and over again, He commands these celebrations. And He tells His people to rejoice. God has lavished so much on you. You want to know what you should do in return? Rejoice. Celebrate. Praise the Lord for it. Here he tells the people to blow the trumpet. Literally throw the party. (laughs) Did you know that's a command of God? To blow the trumpet, to throw the party. It's as much a command of God as thou shalt not steal. To celebrate, to rejoice, to be thankful for what God has done. Psalm 81 reminds Israel of God's deliverance from Egypt. Verse 6 says, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. God was so willing to bless. He calls to his people in verse 10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But look at the tragic statement in the next verse. But my people would not heed my voice 
and Israel would have none of me. Isn't that sad? Israel, my people, who I wanted to bless, would have none of me. God groans in verse 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. You know, if you've got teenagers, you can relate to God's frustration here. There's so much you would want to do for your teenagers if they just listen, if they just cooperate with you. That's how God felt about Israel. He loved them. Here's John Phillips' introduction to the next psalm. Psalm 82 is full of drama and interest. The judges suddenly find themselves in court. Now, however, they are not arrogantly sitting on the bench, pocketing their bribes, bullying witnesses, bending justice to suit themselves. They are in the dock. God sits on the bench. That's what we have here in Psalm 82. Verse 1 says of God, He judges among the gods, little g. Now, the word translated G-O-D with the little g can also mean mighty ones. And it referred to the judges of the land. You see, judges in Israel were often called gods with the small g because they were God's authority over the people. Another commentator explains, the judges' decisions were to be based on the law of God, guided by the mind of God, and derived through the Spirit of God. The office of judge was the most God-like position in ancient Israel. Don't get confused with this peculiar Hebrew usage of the word gods. There are cults, including the Mormons, who will use Psalm 82 to justify their unbiblical and heretical teaching that man can become a god. Guys, there is only one God, Jehovah God, and His Son, Jesus Christ. We can become like God in character but not in substance or in essence. Humans remain humans forever. They get saved. They get changed. They become like God, but they don't become gods. Humans remain humans forever. God remains God forever. It's ironic, but when you read Psalm 82 in context, the one thing it definitely teaches is that these wicked judges of Israel were painfully, sinfully human. That's the one thing it does teach. Not that they were gods in the way God is God, but that they were God's authority and yet they acted like sinful men. Note verses 6 and 7. He says, I said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men. See, here's what these evil judges had forgotten. Yes, God entrusted them with authority, but they were still men. And rather than teach man's potential for deity, Psalm 82 was intended to remind man of his immortality, or his mortality, I'm sorry. That he was going to die just like other men, and that he had an obligation to God. Psalm 83 may have been written in the days of King Jehoshaphat, you remember 2 Chronicles chapter 20 tells us of the coalition, the confederacy that had allied itself against Judah during the reign of Jehoshaphat. The Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites had all come together. And King Jehoshaphat got uptight. And he ordered a day of prayer for the nation, a day of fasting and prayer. And after the king led in prayer that day, the Spirit of God came upon a man named Jehaziel, who prophesied victory for Israel. And you will remember Jehaziel's famous words. He said, Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Second Chronicles 20, verse 14, gives to us Jehaziel's pedigree. And interestingly enough, he was a son of Asaph. It's possible that that man, Jehaziel, may have penned Psalm 83. In verse 5, the psalmist mentions the confederacy that's come against God. In verse 17, he prays, let them be confounded and dismayed forever. And you remember how God defeated the confederation that had come against Jehoshaphat. 
The Judean king put the musicians out in front of his army and he sent them out praising the Lord. They went out in praise and their worship confused the enemy and caused them to turn on one another. And God won the battle without Jehoshaphat or his army even firing a shot. And the psalmist had prayed, let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Psalm 84 is one of my favorite psalms. It's in three stanzas. The first stanza depicts the psalmist's passion for God's presence. The second stanza describes his pilgrimage to God's presence. And the third stanza, the peace he finds in God's presence. Think of it this way. His thirst for God, his trip to God, and the treats of God. He begins, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, was the happening place. The Hebrews worshipped God at the temple in Jerusalem. The psalmist looks forward to the times that he can come to the temple and spend time in God's presence. He longs to return to the courts of the Lord. His soul hungers and thirsts for God. He envies the little birds that make their nests up in the rafters. They spend all their time in the courts of the Lord. He can only get there a few times a year. The psalmist longs for God, but his longing, remember, is not enough. He has to make pilgrimage. He has to come. And just desiring God is not enough. You've got to come to God. But the road to Jerusalem was tough and tricky. The holy city was a difficult destination. The road led through deserts and wildernesses. They were tight and windy. They laced with danger. The trip to Jerusalem required determination, and the same is true today. All kinds of distractions, all kinds of barriers can get in our way from seeking God. Our heart has to be set on pilgrimage. We have to be determined to know God in order to seek Him and find Him. Desire is required. When the psalmist arrives in the tabernacle precincts, he's overjoyed. He says in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. He'd swap a thousand bulldog games for 24 hours in the Lord's presence. And he'd rather be a doorkeeper in the temple just so he could gaze in at the glory every time the door cracked open than to have front row seats in the tents of wickedness. What beauty we find. What peace we experience. What satisfaction fills our hearts and what joy lights up our lives when we just hang out with Jesus and spend time in His presence and just wait on Him in the courts of the Lord. Wow. Psalm 85 was written in the days of Zerubbabel. Verse 1 says, Lord, You have been favorable to Your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of Your people. You remember Zerubbabel was the leader who brought the exiled Jews back to Jerusalem after their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. He was the one who helped them rebuild their temple. And so you could kind of call Psalm 85 a song for starting over. And no one can really get a fresh start without the promise of verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You see, here's the snag in our salvation. God said the penalty of sin is death. So, for God to be true to His Word and righteous in His works, man must die. And yet God wants to show us mercy. He wants to establish a peace with man. But how can He without violating His truth and running roughshod over His righteousness? Where can mercy and truth find a meeting place? Where does righteousness and peace kiss and come together? Only in Jesus Christ. He was the one who paid the penalty for our sin. He satisfied the demands on God's righteousness and God's truth. At the same time, He died in our place. And He showed to us the mercy of God. He reveals to us the degree to which God is willing to go to make peace with us. See, in Jesus, God can show mercy, and yet God can also be truthful. God can punish sin, but God can love the sinner. It all happens in Jesus. That's where mercy and truth come together. That's where righteousness and peace kiss one another. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the solution to our problem. He is the reconciliation of God's mercy and God's truth. Psalm 86 verse 5 says of God, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. He then says in verses 7 and 8, In the day of my trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me. And check this out. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. Think about it. What other so-called gods are as willing to forgive and deliver as our God? Compare the true God with the false gods of other religions. Islam, (laughs) it crushes its opponents. Allah is not looking to show mercy and forgiveness. Buddhism locks a sinner in countless reincarnations where they have to return as snails and slugs for the punishment of their past mistakes. That's not very merciful. (laughs) The best Buddha offers you is endless nothingness. And the Hindu pantheon of gods is full of vicious gods who feed on the blood of men. Only Jesus Christ bleeds for His people. He alone loves us and delights to forgive us and has worked out the means by which we can be accepted and forgiven by a holy God. Hey, Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. I love verse 11. The psalmist asks the Lord, Unite my heart to fear your name. You know, we're often churned up with such a mixture of conflicting and competing emotions. You know, how do you feel? Well, I don't really know how I feel. I'm just just tore up. You ever been there? Our inner life can just become a swirl of hormones and feelings and emotions and thoughts. And from time to time, my wife will just look over and say, Get a grip, Sandy. You know, you're just coming unglued. But here the psalmist asks God to get a grip on him. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, grab all of this emotion that's swirling around in me, all these wild thoughts, all this anxiety that I'm feeling. Lord, grab it all and pull it together and help me to rally my energy and my emotions and corral my thoughts and corral my my mental activity. And Lord, just help me bring it all together. Unite it, Lord, and help me just to bring it at your feet and submit it to you and just bow my heart before you. You can pray that prayer. Lord, help me to get a grip. In other words, unite my heart. To fear your name. Psalm 87 focuses on the most strategic city in the world. And it's not Washington, nor is it Moscow or Tokyo or London. It's Jerusalem. Again, commentator John Phillips writes of Jerusalem's surprising importance. It stands where no city has any business standing. It has no river. It commands no strategic highway. Its roads have always led straight out into the desert. And yet 34 times in its history, Jerusalem has been fought over and besieged. Even today, the eyes all around the world are turned where? On Jerusalem. The interest of the nations is the status of Jerusalem. Verses 2 and 3 tell us why Jerusalem is so special. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. See, Jerusalem is still God's city. It's central to His plans, both past plans and future plans. God has a glorious destiny established for the city of Jerusalem. The rest of Psalm 87 describes how being born in Jerusalem is a unique honor and how the city has been a source of inspiration For singers and musicians, the last line reads, All my springs are in you. In other words, you're my source of inspiration. You're the spring that bubbles up, O Jerusalem. But don't you think you and I could say that of Jesus? That all our springs are in Him. 
that he is our he is our source of refreshment and praise and inspiration and motivation lord jesus all our springs are in you psalm 88 is a contemplation of heman one of david's chief musicians and it's set to mahalath leonath which means dancing and shouting And yet I have no idea why. Because there is nothing in this psalm to dance about or to shout about. Psalm 88 is the saddest of all the psalms. One man writes, We thank God that if there has to be such a psalm in the Bible, there is only one of them. (laughs) That's being blunt. In Psalm 88, the psalmist definitely sings the blues. In verse 3, he says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. And the psalm just goes downhill from there. (laughs) I'm telling you. Apparently, he's suffering a terminal illness, possibly leprosy. He's got one foot in the grave. His friends have forsaken him. There is no hope. Not one ray of sunshine lights up the agony of Psalm 88. And yet maybe that's the very point. Perhaps God is teaching us that no matter how depressing our situation is, we can always cry out to him. That we can go before God and let it all hang out. (laughs) We can just pour it out. No matter how bad it gets, we can let God know. We can cry out to God. You see, when the poison of pain fills our cup, it is always better to pour it out than to let it eat through the bottom. Sometimes we just need to let it all hang out and just pour it out before the Lord. Psalm 89 is a contemplation of Ethan, another of David's chief musicians. One day, David looked out the window. And he saw the tent that occupied the ark of God. And this upset him. For he was living in this beautiful, elegant palace while the presence of God rested in the equivalent of a pop-up camper. And David decided to build God a house. God deserves a house. But God came to David and told him that it would be for his son Solomon to build a house or a temple for God. Instead, God would build for David a house. Literally, a dynasty. And God promised David three things. A perpetual successor, an everlasting throne, and an eternal kingdom. The psalmist repeats David's God's covenant to to King David in verses 3 and 4. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 89 declares God's faithfulness is seen in nature and his faithfulness toward King David. Even if David's heirs sin, God says, for David's sake, he will remain true to the covenant. And the psalmist sums up God's promises to David in verse 36. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. And of course, We can read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke and realize that the seed of David is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one who was the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to David. Jesus is the perpetual successor. Jesus will establish an everlasting throne and Jesus will reign over an eternal kingdom. And God's promises to David will be fulfilled in the Son of David, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And there we finish up tonight's section with Psalm 89. 